0: The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 23rd chapter. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. In the name of Christ our King. Amen. Well, it's really hard to believe that this year has already come to an end. Of course... I'm not referring to the end of another calendar year because we still have a month to go. Rather, the liturgical or church year ends today as we celebrate Christ as King. Our worship and our celebration together are important for many reasons in light of these circumstances. A week from today, we begin our four-week journey through Advent, our time of waiting for Christ's entry into our world. So it is necessary and appropriate that we lift up Christ as king in this gospel that perhaps maybe feels more appropriate for Holy Week. But its placement here seeks to bring an end to the story of Christ that will begin again next week, even before his birth we celebrate in a month's time. It's important to share this context in relation to Advent and Christmas Not to lift them up prematurely like we have already done in our household with seasonal decorations for Christmas galore and the Christmas tree just going up yesterday. But rather, we do this to understand the irony of the story of God's victory that ends each year with a death and begins again with life. It's easy to let the clout of death and the end of another church year rule this day, but in fact, It is the coronation of Christ that is meant to be lifted up today. It's kind of like the first movie, Frozen, and the song uh, that she sings when it's coronation day at the beginning. I haven't seen the second, so I can't say for that one. And we aren't gathered either to celebrate this coronation in a way that most are celebrated with a successful political or military campaign. This is not the means by how Christ is revered as king. He didn't, come, he didn't become king for the power and the prestige which is the motivator of most kings in this world. We celebrate Christ as king, not because he sits on a throne, but because he is nailed to a cross. There is stark irony in this story, in this celebration for us as Christians in a world where this is not how kings are traditionally recognized. And there are so many ways that this well-known crucifixion story throws in the face of our world our understanding of kingship, of royalty. The mockery from the onlookers seems obvious from the other characters in this story. The soldiers taunt Jesus, and so do the religious authorities. Even a criminal being crucified next to Jesus joins in the chorus of voices, refraining the irony of this situation. But in spite of their derision... It's quite easy to understand their sense of disappointment that many of them likely felt. Their mockeries and taunts of Jesus were likely a defense mechanism, a lack of understanding that manifests because they didn't know how to deal with their disappointment. The man they wanted to be Messiah, to be king, was dying on a cross. This was supposed to be the long-awaited, the long-expected coronation of Jesus, his kingship announced, his kingship celebrated. The whole Gospel of Luke that our lectionary has been working through this past year has been slowly building up to this coronation ceremony. But then Christ's kingship is manifest in the most powerless, humiliating set of circumstances mocked as a king by being dressed in purple garments the color of royalty, given a crown of thorns, a patronizing title inscribed above his bleeding head. This is what we've been waiting for? The powerful paradox of this being the manifestation of Christ's coronation by being crucified on a cross is entirely (laughs) underwhelming, isn't it? Or is it? Is it not rather overwhelming that God made a loud declaration in this irony, this paradox, that God's kingdom, Jesus' kingship, is nothing like the kingdoms or kings that rule this world? A plot twist like no other. To have King exalted in the most unexpected of ways. Speaking of exaltation, what if we view all that mockery and taunting as confessions of faith, as a glorification of Christ as King? When you look past the mob mentality of it all and the attempts to humiliate Jesus, what if we read and hear these taunts as actual holy utterings of Christ as King? The very upside-down nature of That fits with this whole circumstance. First, it's the religious leaders who affirm his kingship, then the soldiers, and finally, the criminals crucified with him. Even the first criminal, who often falls victim to the interpretation as an antagonist, he recognizes the kingship of Christ. And the second, often lofted over the other because of his humbler reaction to the death sentence, also affirms Jesus' royalty. I listened to a commentary on this story from Luke 23 this past week, and one commentator's reflection on the second criminal struck me. The one who seems loftier in his conversation with Jesus. We are not told that this criminal felt sorry or that he was sympathetic toward Jesus. It is only our assumption. Rather, what this criminal senses is the great irony taking place before him. All an affirmation of the great irony with which Christ is exalted as king. More than all this, it is Christ's response to this criminal being crucified with him that shows us how our true king operates in this world for criminals who were, found guilt, for who were found and likely guilty for their crimes, both of them, even for them is paradise promised. Even for them, sinners not worthy of redemption is forgiveness freely given, even for them, even for us. And our Old Testament prophecy from Jeremiah today, it echoes the chorus of regal imagery for Christ on this Christ the King Sunday by lifting up the role of shepherds. Because in the context of the Old Testament, shepherds were always a reference to royalty. Jeremiah knew this, but also knew that all shepherds were not good. It's easy for us to assume that because we most readily think of Christ, our good shepherd, However, Jeremiah's objective was to point out that many kings were not so good, not properly motivated to execute their office with integrity and justice. Justice according to God's kingdom and not of this world. And the final verse of this passage connects directly to the type of king Christ was and is in the midst of this false kings and kingdoms of this world. Christ is the King, the Lord of righteousness. Christ's coronation as King had nothing to do with the title, with the position or the perks that it offered, but rather the opportunity it provided for him to make things right with God, to make us righteous. Part of me wishes that we had a hymn tune to set our second reading to from Colossians. One of my seminary professors once tried to sum up this early Christian hymn in two words. Jesus, wow! Truly, this song of Christ's people proclaims and exalts not only that he is king, but he is the king to end all kings. Meaning when Christ entered this world, the loyalty to any other kingdom or king lost all meaning and value. In the irony of his humiliating death on the cross, Christ became king universal. My favorite verse is 19 from this passage. For in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know that if our God, who is still so mysterious and magnificent beyond our comprehension, is pleased to dwell in a human form then this human form of Jesus is worthy of our loyalty, worthy of the loyalty of all creation. One final thing. I don't often reference the designated psalm on any given Sunday, but this 46th psalm has a special place in my heart, in my faith, and in my approach to life and ministry. I chose it for my ordination, when I was consecrated and called into the ministry of word and sacrament as a pastor. Because for me, this psalm harmonizes the amazing ways in which our God permeates every part of our existence in this world. The power of its juxtapositions of God with us language and seas foaming and mountains trembling leaves me so comforted and inspired to do as Jesus did at any moment in my life. To not respond in vanity to the opportunity that things like a coronation provide, but rather to act in humble service, as our God did in Jesus on the cross. Granted, we don't have too many royal families remaining in the governing systems of this world, but politicians and presidents and prime ministers, they hold similar places of influence. In the U.S., many have historically referred to such as these as public servants. Although it feels less and less like this is true. Jesus' coronation lifted him up as the model public servant. One motivated not by power or position, but rather the service of unconditional love and life everlasting. And don't worry, the irony and paradox of this sermon fits well with our theme today. The command to be still and to exalt that we hear in the psalm, it seems impossible, but it adds to the irony in which we glorify and lift up Christ as King. This isn't a meditative silence that we are being called to. It's a chaotic scene, a noisy scene, much like we find ourselves in this world, but one where God yells into The chaos for silence. And the chaos listens. So as we enter this season of Advent and as we wait, let us yell in our silent actions that Christ is King. And let us wait for the day when Christ descends and the chaos listens. Amen.